This is an ABC podcast. As I'm sure we all know, mining is an incredibly disruptive and destructive process, even when you do it well. And many environmentalists would like to see the back of it, particularly where coal is concerned. But here's the paradox. If we're determined to build a world without fossil fuels, then continuing to mine is going to be essential. Not just to secure the construction materials we'll need in the future, like steel and aluminium, but the lesser-known minerals that help power everything from smartphones to wind turbines. Hello, Anthony Fennell here. Welcome to Future Tense and to the first episode in our 2022 series. Our focus in this program is on the rising demand for what are called critical minerals and issues around extraction, safety and supply. So critical minerals are basically minerals, elements essential for any country's economic and national security and whose supply is susceptible to disruption. Dr. Sheikha Sharma a professor of geology at West Virginia University. The definition of critical is kind of different for different countries, different industries, and it also changes with time. What was critical, like in 2018, the US Department of Interior published a list which had 35 critical minerals. In 2021, the US Geological Survey updated that list, and now we have more than 50 minerals on that list. So it keeps changing. And on the Australian government's list, there are currently 24. Things like cobalt and lithium, for example. Now, critical minerals have been an important component of manufacturing for decades. And they're now found in everything from smartphones to advanced weapons hardware. But demand has skyrocketed, chiefly because of an increase in the uptake of clean energy technology. All the clean green energy needs, they are significantly more critical minerals and metals required compared to their fossil fuel counterparts. So electrical car, for example, or EV needs like six times more minerals input than a conventional car. Offshore wind turbines need 13 times more minerals than similarly sized gas fire power plant. So that's what is primarily driving this sudden surge over the last couple of years. And this is supposed to increase further. We are expecting, you know, like demand for some of these minerals and metals to increase by up to 500% by 2050, like for things like lithium, graphite, cobalt. So the demand is not only increasing rapidly, but it is going to increase much, much more rapidly. Some critical minerals are so difficult to get hold of, they're called rare earths. So, of course, they're among the most highly sought after, according to Dr Alison Britt from Geoscience Australia. But here's another paradox. Despite their name, rare earth elements are not rare. They're in the oceans, soil, plants. There could even be small amounts in your own body. What is rare is finding enough of these lanthanide elements in a geological setting where they're concentrated enough to support a profitable mining operation. China has the most rare earth elements in the ground, the largest number of resources, but there are also resources right across the world. So the USA has quite a bit of rare earth elements. Vietnam has a lot. Brazil has a lot. Russia has a lot. India has a lot. And in Australia, 
we have a range of rare earth deposits and interestingly they occur right across the country because rare earth deposits can form in many different geological settings. So we have our biggest operating rare earths mine, Mount Weld, which is in Western Australia, a pilot mine called Browns Range, which is right up in the northern part of Western Australia, almost on the border with the Northern Territory. Now that particular mine is an interesting one because it's the only significant source of dysprosium outside of China, which is a very valuable rare earth element. And we also had advanced projects in Australia such as Yanji Manor in Western Australia, Nolan's in the Territory and Dubbo in New South Wales. These are all hard rock deposits, but rare earths can also occur in mineral sand deposits. We have very many of these. So we have advanced projects for extracting rare earths from mineral sands in Western Australia and Victoria as well. Could I get you also just to give us a bit of an idea of how they are used in modern technology and what do they really add to the technology that we have today? So rare earth elements are special because they're used in so many types of technology from superconducting ceramics to lighting for the film industry. I'm giving you a bit of a shopping list here, but we're talking self-cleaning ovens, flat screen TVs, medical lasers, x-rays, refrigeration units, anti-counterfeit measures in banknotes, MRIs at the hospital. And the reason they're used in so many technologies is because adding rare earth elements makes all of these technologies work better and you don't need a lot. So just like sprinkling some salt and pepper on your meal brings out the flavour, small additions of rare earth elements make power lines transmit more efficiently, they make lasers more powerful, they amplify the signal in fibre optic cables and they make the strongest permanent magnets invented. Now the magnets are important because they can be quite small and light but still powerful enough to run the turbine of a giant windmill or the motor in an electric car. So they are going to be super important for decarbonising our future. The International Energy Agency put out a report earlier this year in which they're estimating that the demand for rare earth will increase something like three to seven times today's usage by 2040. And so to meet that, this comes back to the difficulties of extraction. It Mm -hmm. sounds great that there's an abundance of these elements, but the actual way in which you mine them is much more complicated, isn't it, than, say, you know, coal or iron ore? Yeah, that's right. So rare earths are really hard to process because they're so difficult to separate from each other. So if you think of a close-knit family, the rare earths are the closest of all. They just love each other so much, they never want to stop holding hands. Two of them are actually called the twins. Literally, the names praseodinium and neodymium mean green twin and new twin in Greek. They always occur together and so difficult to peel apart. which means high temperatures and aggressive acids need to be used to make the elements separate. The mining of rare earths and other critical minerals is on the rise, as we've mentioned, but the history of extraction to date has not been pretty, especially in the developing world. For journalist and author Guillaume Pitron, it's the clean energy industry's dirty little secret. Everyone talks about green and clean technologies. But actually, it's clean when you use your electric vehicles or when a solar panel is working. But what's not clean is the way these technologies are being manufactured and produced. Because a solar panel or an electric car cannot be produced without critical minerals such as silicium metal or rare earths or lithium or graphite or cobalt. 
And the extraction of these metals is extremely problematic from an environmental viewpoint. So obviously it's not green at all, but we have the illusion of green technologies because we don't actually bear the true environmental and social cost of extracting them because extraction, as we understand, is far away from our Western countries. Now the question is, should we still move towards this green energy transition? And my, my answer is obviously yes. These technologies have a positive aspects, which is that they emit less CO2 emissions than fossil fuel technologies. So obviously, in a way, we have to do this energy transition. Now the question is, what new sorts of pollution are we going to produce relating to the mining activities? What impact will it have on biodiversity, for example? And this is not very well understood. And my concern is that we actually succeed in fighting a pollution, CO2 emissions, but we recreate some new pollution and environmental issues by turning to green technologies. And these new problems that we are leaving to the next generation will have to be taken into consideration, will have to be fighted in 30 years as we have moved to green technology. So I think in a way we're replacing some problems by new problems. And I'm not sure we're solving issues, we're shifting from issues to other issues, but still this energy transition needs to be done just for the sake of not warming up the planet more than what we have already done. And the environmental damage and the damage to people's lives can be enormously significant, particularly in certain countries where the you know standards aren't maintained, aren't held high. The environmental damages of mining and refining critical metals in China are absolutely huge. And I haven't necessarily been to the Republic of Congo, Kinshasa, or to Bolivia, where cobalt and lithium are being extracted. But obviously, this also poses lots of issues. When you look at the Latin America market, this continent is extremely rich of these minerals. Potentially, it could be a very strong producer, this continent, of such metals. But when you speak with uh, representatives of mining activities in these countries, they explain to you, in many cases, that actually the neighboring populations just don't want to hear about the production of these metals because they don't want to be impacted from an environmental and a social and a sanitary viewpoint. So there is a potential, but this potential is not used because of the opposition of neighboring population. And that tells you how much these populations all around the world don't want to pay the price for the rest of the world to pretend to be clean. And that is obviously what we, a reality that we have to face. Everywhere you want to mine, whether it's lithium, graphite, cobalt, rare earths, in order to make clean technologies, you'll have blockages and, and resistances from local populations because it's obviously always dirty to mine anywhere in the world. Uh, that's kind of like a, a interesting paradox that most of the supporters of transition to green energy and these clean technologies are also anti-mining. And rightfully so, because mining of several of these critical minerals and rare earths can have really detrimental impacts on environment, which can range anywhere from increasing greenhouse gas emissions, solid waste production, heavy metal contamination of water, soil, air, soil erosion, 
and then you know like uh, human health impacts and we see that happening almost everywhere where these critical minerals and rare earths are getting mined for example drc or democratic republic of congo controls 60 to 70 percent of the world's cobalt supply but it is also one of the 10 most polluted places on earth right and similarly like lithium mining in chile where we are putting lithium in uh, you know evaporation ponds these ponds are the size of downtown manhattan and then further the processing of several of these minerals is very water intensive several of these mining operations are in areas which are already under great water stress so yes mining of these minerals is critical for our new green world but we need to make sure that we reduce not only the environmental impacts of this extraction, but also we try to reduce the carbon and water footprint of these mining operations. And the flow on to human health? Oh, yeah. If we don't enforce stricter, uh, you know, regulatory standards and we are not overseeing these operations and, you know, like creating more kind of like transparency where these mining companies are required to report any such incidents, you know, like more kind of stricter regulations of environmental protocols which are followed in these mining operations. So the general effect of mining has been well studied, but not so much for some of these new and upcoming critical minerals which we are starting to mine. And that's, you know, like one of the concerns that there is this critical need and people are seeing how reliance on single countries can really disrupt supply chains. So now there is that big rush of each and every country trying to be self-reliant, you know, trying to set up mining operations. But one thing which we have to make sure is that in kind of this race of going after these critical minerals and rare earths, we, you know, do not undermine the environmental impacts of these operations. Because, you know, the whole point of developing these clean green technologies is to save our mothership earth, right? So we need to make sure that we do it right. We don't want to pollute it further. Professor Sheikha Sharma from the University of West Virginia. You're with Future Tense on RN, ABC Radio National, exploring the world around us, looking for the pathways ahead and signposting the future. quick recap before heading on. The demand for critical minerals and rare earth elements will only escalate in coming years as our technology-hungry world continues to expand. Unless we're careful about how we source those minerals, the environmental and human impacts could be enormous. Now to the geopolitical machinations that underpin the current shift we're seeing in critical mineral mining and supply. As we heard earlier, China has a significant grip over much of the critical minerals market, and Western countries allowed that to happen. To understand why, here's Dr John Coyne from the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. Depending on how you look at it, so they dominate about 60% of the supply, but when you take up into consideration the value adds, they probably control close to 80% of the market. Now, when we say this, what we're talking about is 
state-owned enterprises. So, you know, what you'll have is a company that is owned by the Chinese Communist Party for all intensive purposes that owns the mines and processing. Now, how all this came about, part of it is very, very clever planning and central planning. So what we saw is, is a real understanding within the Chinese economy that these rare earth elements were critical to a range of construction activity and manufacturing. So they secured those ones. It was a wise investment. You know, if we look back to 2014, what we saw is in 2014, globalisation is, is racing along. It was the high mark of China's relationship with the world and certainly with Australia economically. So what we saw is Xi Jinping coming to Australia, you know, being very, very welcome, talking about a warm economic future, etc. So in essence, what happened is globalisation and just-in-time supply chains added into that equation. So very quickly, the Chinese found themselves, um, or the Chinese Communist Party found itself with a whole heap of state-owned enterprises that controlled the global supply of these. Now, secondly, is that many of the rare earths, their extraction of those rare earths and their processing, to put it very frank, are very, very destructive on the environment. So, you know, leaving very much heavily poisoned tailings, et cetera. And that kept a lot of Western countries out of the market. And it kept even indeed. So, you know, Malaysia, once upon a time, was a big processor of rare earth elements, shut down its processing capability, really in response to the environmental issues. So there was that environmental component of it that made it really, really different. The Chinese were willing to do that processing within their country. Now, the fact that one nation has ended up with so much power over the distribution of resource is obviously not desirable. But even less desirable is the fact that Xi Jinping's dictatorship has begun using critical minerals as a geopolitical weapon. The first time we saw them contract supply was in response to the Japanese. And so they constricted supply. The Japanese were then left in the Japanese government industry were basically left unable to do a range of manufacturing. And then more recently in response to the US government's support of Taiwan. And and in fact, it slowed down the production of the Joint Strike Fighter as a result of that. So they very much have shown not only the capability, but also the intent using the supply of rare earth materials as a geopolitical mechanism. Now, on top of that, they've also used it as a competitive edge. So, you know, it's very hard for people to enter the market in terms of miners and in terms of processing. What happens is is you need to be able to assure, so for instance, if you're feeding rare earth elements into, say, the German manufacturing market, you need to be able to assure them that you have access to the downstream value chain, being able to process these rare earth elements, but you also need to be able to show that you can have a consistent supply at scale. And very much that major control of the market allows Chinese state-owned companies to sort of choke out competition. In 2021, the subject of new avenues of supply came up during a meeting of the Quad Security Grouping, which comprises the US, India, Japan and Australia, What came out of that? So the Quad met to discuss this, saying, look, we have to find an alternative way and it's not going to come from market forces and requires an investment. What we did see, so there's an agreement struck between the US government and Linus in South Australia. We're seeing some rare earths going from Linus to the US and I believe into Texas where there's a a processing plant there. Linus being Um, a corporation, a mining corporation. Linus is a mining corporation, that's right. So we sort of saw that, but the Quad hasn't really landed on how to deal with this. Now, the real problem why the Quad can't do that is it's a money and a policy issue. 
So in order to raise the equity needed to establish a rare earth mine, sitting behind that as a result of the Chinese state's monopolistic control, you have to really have someone who's there to underwrite the geopolitical risk because the market isn't willing to do that. And you also have to have someone who's willing to invest. And when I say the geopolitical risk, that's the direct one of being forced out of the market by competition. So there's sort of some big policy levers and big finance levers that need to be put in place. Now, that's outside of the capacity, I believe anyway, of Australia to do on its own. There's some things that Australian policymakers and the federal government can do. But realistically, if we're going to crack this nut, what we really need to do is have a critical mass. Now, the quad is important to that. But the key players certainly at the beginning are the Japanese who've realised that the Americans ourselves. And I think then a number of the other countries that use rare earth in manufacturing. So front and centre of mine there is Germany. So the United States and their role in all of this, in trying to increase the supply or or the, the multiple avenues of supply, how central are they? Look, the Americans are central because got a, they have got a processing capability for some of these rare earth elements, and they're also a source of a significant capital that would be needed to invest and to get a number of these mines and the downstream processing up and running in Australia. I also think personally that the Japanese government is a prime source of that, that capital as well and that investment. The deal that Linus Corporation has with the US Defence Department to develop a, a rare earth processing facility in Texas... What can you tell us about that and how significant is that? Look, this is where we're really getting into this sort of competition. So by setting up a processing centre, what we're seeing is a sustained alternative for the supply of some rare earths for US manufacturing and specifically in backfilling some of the development of those those big fifth generation warfighting capabilities. So what we're talking about here is capabilities like the Joint Strike Fighter, as an example. So, you know, it really is critical in terms of, of manufacturing. And what it does is it takes out of the hands of the Chinese Communist Party the ability to use rare earth as an economic and a geopolitical tool. So, But, you know, it's a small step and we should be seeing it as a small step. Realistically, it has to be done more globally. And it's not about, this isn't about economically punishing China either. What this is about is about ensuring supply and ensuring competition in the market rather than preventing China from doing anything. I think that that's really critical in this discussion. But as Western nations try to find alternatives, will China sit still and watch it happen? Guillaume Pitron believes critical minerals and rare earths certainly have the potential to become a flashpoint. Today, there is no military war for accessing critical metals and accessing rare earths. Not a single bullet has been shot in order to secure a strategic deposit. But I think, uh, look back at the last 100 years, oil was obviously, and still is today, obviously a very important commodity for our energy stability and our ways of life. And obviously, many events and wars for the last 100 years can be analyzed through the bias of our needs for oil, especially in the Middle East, right? So the question is, will history repeat itself Will we in the future wage armies in order to secure the next deposits, the future deposits of the what we already call the next oil, because the rare earth is being called the next oil? Will we wage such armies or will we be wise enough in order to not wage such, uh, such armies? And I think that's a fair question to be asked. All these commodities are very strategic and more and more deposits, more and more mines need to be 
opened in order to satisfy our needs for a greener world. So the question remains open and obviously and hopefully we'll be wise enough not to repeat history. key challenge for managing the mining and supply of critical minerals in the future will be developing systems that better track consumer demand and the needs of manufacturers. As we heard at the beginning of the show, the list of what we determined to be a critical mineral has changed considerably over time. And it will keep on changing, says Dr Gerard Ford from the CSIRO. His new modelling challenges the assumption that metals like cobalt and nickel, for example, will be just as sought after in the future as they are today. So what's different about our modeling is that we include several factors that we know will influence the demand for individual metals. So we look at the rate of technology change, so how quickly battery technology is changing, how quickly electric vehicles are being uptaken, and whether batteries are reused or recycled in any great portions. And those simple few factors interact in very complicated ways to show us when and where we're going to have new mining requirement or new ability to take advantage of the recycling flows in the long term. And so it's much more sophisticated of an accounting method than the simple projections that we see in most of the reporting around critical minerals. Does that mean then that in terms of mining, that some minerals will still need to be mined at a certain level, but others, the expectations will have to be adjusted and and possibly adjusted down? That's correct. And the technology change angle is particularly important because how quickly do we shift away from cobalt is a great example of how soon that demand for new mining will drop off. And if you think about that in a very aggressive way, if we move really quickly to what like the Chinese market is moving towards these lithium iron phosphate batteries, then we see quick drop off in cobalt, for instance. Now, Gerard Ford also points to the role that recycling could play in meeting future demands. Shika Sharma agrees, but with a caution. You know, every year we are disposing about 50 million metric tons of e-waste in landfills worldwide. And only 12.5% of this e-waste is currently being recycled. The potential of recycling of e-waste is not only great, but in some ways it's also required because it reduces the environmental impact related to disposal of e-waste. It decreases the carbon and water footprint of the need for mining more minerals. You know, recycling plays a very, very critical role. And a lot of research needs to go into developing these recycling technologies. So in my opinion, recycling of e-waste would contribute significantly, but I don't think it has the potential to become the primary resource for some of these critical minerals. And the reason why I say this is primarily because the demand of these minerals is growing at a very, very fast pace. And developing efficient recycling technologies It's a complex problem because some of these e-wastes which we are trying to recycle, each material or, you know, whatever we are trying to recycle, each material is made up of thousands of different substances. So even if we figure out a technology which is very efficient in recycling batteries coming from cars, it might not be equally efficient 
to recycle some other e-waste. So a lot of technology development needs to happen and it needs to happen very quickly. The other issue is that technologies are rapidly changing. So the manufactured products which we are getting are changing rapidly. And then the minerals being used in these products are changing rapidly. So for example, we develop a recycle industry around recycling of lithium from electric batteries used in EVs. But then the future EVs might shift to solid state, right? So now we have completely different product and we need to figure out a completely different strategy to recycle minerals from that new product. So it's kind of like, you know, a cat and mouse game. And although recycling will play a key role, will still significantly rely on some of the conventional ways of getting our minerals like mining. Professor Sheikha Sharma from West Virginia University ending this edition of Future Tense. We also heard from the CSIRO's Gerard Ford, Alison Britt from Geoscience Australia, author and journalist Guillaume Pitron, and Dr John Coyne from the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. The producer for this program was Karen Savanovitz. I'm Anthony Fennell. Until next time, cheers. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.